Well, good morning, church. Good morning, visitors. Good morning, those of you who are uh, tuning in to us on this Easter morning. Happy Resurrection Day. Um, he is risen. And I'll leave space for you to say that as well. That's a tradition that we have as Christians on Easter Sunday, that we say that to one another and we repeat back, he is risen indeed. So I encourage you to do that in your homes, with your families and your kids and whoever's around you to say that back to me. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Um, Easter, by far, is the greatest day on the calendar for Christians because it is on this day that we celebrate that King Jesus is alive. It's this day that we celebrate that the grave is empty. The tomb has no body in it, and he lives and reigns even today. What a great day today is. On Good Friday, on Good Friday we celebrate that payment was made. We, we, we celebrate that, that payment was made on our sin debt to God. When Jesus died on the cross. But on this day, on, on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Day, we celebrate that that payment was accepted. And that debt was paid in full. Good Friday means that, that payment was made when Jesus died. But, but today, we know that that payment was accepted by the Father. And that debt was paid for all those who trust in Christ. So this morning, I want us to look at that story, the greatest story ever told. And we're going to find it this morning in John chapter 20. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to John's gospel. We're going to be looking at chapter 20, the first 21 verses to hear this amazing news of an empty tomb. As you find your way there in the Bibles, I want I want to remind you of something, and I want you to consider something. And what I want you to consider this morning is that you are listening to this by God's design. You are not listening to this by any kind of just happenstance or coincidence. You are listening to this because we believe that God is sovereign, which means that he's in control of everything. Even those who click on a live stream for a church's Easter worship service. And so you are, wherever you are, whether you're in your home with your family or whether you're by yourself or you're driving or wherever you are at work, if you're looking on a TV screen or a computer or even on your phone, you're listening to this by God's design. You're listening to this on His purpose. And I don't know what that specific reason is for you, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it has something to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because that's what we're talking about this morning. According to God's sovereignty, according to his divine design, he has you tuning in today. He has you listening to this, this true story about the resurrection of Jesus the Son of God, the empty tomb, He has you listening to this for a reason. And I believe that He intends to change your life. I believe that He intends for you to walk away from this exposure to this story different. And that's my prayer for all of us this morning, that we might walk away from this story 
having been changed. So let's listen to it. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. This is the word of God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Would you pray with me? Our Father, what a glorious day today is. What a happy day is this resurrection day. And Father, we Thank you so much for the truth of this day. It's it's, it's not just a a happy day because it's spring. It's not just a happy day because it's a significant day on the church calendar. It is a happy day because this is the day that we celebrate that your son, our savior, the redeemer of all those who have trusted in him, did not stay in the grave. He came back to life and he defeated sin and death for all those who would trust in him. Father, we thank you for this day. We pray, Father, as we uh, 
spend a time together this morning considering that fact. Father, may the implications of that ring true in our heart and our life and give us hope both in this life and in the next. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So the main point of this passage, John 20, verses 1 through 21, is that Jesus is alive. He's come back to life. The grave is empty. The tomb that Mary ran to, that Peter ran to, that John ran to, there's no body in it because Jesus rose from the dead. He came back to life. He had died on a Roman cross and he was buried in a tomb. He was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And now he's alive. He's come back to life. The tomb is empty. He has risen from the dead. And and this morning I want us to talk about the implications of the resurrection. But before we can talk about the implications of the resurrection, we need to deal with that fact. We need to deal with that truth, that he actually did rise from the dead. You see, if we don't believe that, if we can't come to grips with the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, then it's a waste of time for us to talk about the implications of the resurrection. The Bible tells us that Jesus was a real historical person who walked the face of the earth. And Jewish historians and Roman historians alike verify that fact. It's undeniable. Jesus is a real person in history who walked on the face of the earth. And while he was here, he claimed to be God. He claimed to be God in human flesh, God incarnate. He claimed divinity. And then he died. He he, he didn't just die, he was executed. He was executed by Roman crucifixion. And we know that the Romans were experts at execution. And crucifixion was their chosen form of execution. And nobody ever survived it. It was 100% effective. And so Jesus did in fact die. And he was buried in a tomb. So he didn't pass out. He didn't swoon and then, and then revive himself several hours later. He died, just as every other person who had ever been crucified had as well. He was dead and he was buried in a tomb. But then the Bible tells us in this story and in several other places that he rose from the dead. He didn't stay in the grave. He came back to life. Now, there are ample proofs of the resurrection And I'm not going to talk about all of them this morning, but I would love to dialogue with you about them. If you question the reliability of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I would love to dialogue with you about that. In fact, I'll give you my email address, krucker at newbranch.com. Send me an email. Send me what your questions might be. I would love to share with you those proofs of the resurrection. But I want to share with all of us this morning just a couple of them that, to me, are categorically undeniable. And the first is the testimony of eyewitnesses. There's there's eyewitness testimony. 
Any prosecuting attorney will tell you that pretty much any kind of evidence other than eyewitness testimony is just circumstantial evidence. And there's lots of circumstantial evidence confirming the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But to me, the clincher is the direct evidence that we have from the mouths and lips of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. There were literally hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw the resurrected Christ. This passage that we read out of John chapter 20 tells us about a few of them, tells us about Mary and the disciples that, that saw him and touched him and heard him speak to them. Paul tells us in the passage that, that Bob read from earlier out of 1 Corinthians 15 that there were more than 500 witnesses at one time who witnessed the risen Christ. And so literally hundreds of eyewitnesses testify to us that Jesus rose from the dead. They testify in this historical book that Jesus appeared to them after he had died and after he had been put in the grave. They testify that he rose from the dead. In fact, it is this abundance of eyewitness testimony that throughout the centuries has led many people to deny that he ever died in the first place because they, they can't argue with eyewitness testimony that they saw Jesus, that they heard Jesus, that they touched Jesus, and in Luke's gospel, they even shared a breakfast with him. Now, prosecuting attorney, attorneys will also tell us that the credibility of eyewitness tes testimony hinges on the credibility of the eyewitness themselves. And so the reality is eyewitnesses can and do lie at times. And so are these eyewitnesses lying here about the resurrection of Jesus? Well, think about this for a moment. Of all the 11 disciples, with the only exclusion of, uh, the only exception being John, who, by the way, was exiled on the island of Patmos and died there. But every other one of the disciples, except for him, were martyred because of their faith in a risen Christ. Each of them was executed because they refused to recant that Jesus had, in fact, risen from the dead. They believed it, and they believed it to their death. Now, it's not unusual for people to be willing to die for a lie, but not if they know it's a lie. We know that people are, could be willing to die for a lie. That's what radical Islamic terrorism is all about, right? They're, they're willing to die for something that is really, it's a lie, that they'll die and have all of these uh, things in paradise, but that's just it. They believe it to be true. They, they believe what they're willing to die for is in fact truth. So it's not unusual for men to be willing to die for a lie as long as they think it's, a tr think it's true. But if they know it to be a lie, if they know it to be a hoax, well then no, they will not be willing to die for it. And yet each one of these guys each one of the apostles, 
went to their death holding to the conviction that Jesus had in fact risen from the dead. And all they had to do was recant. All they had to do was, was admit, sorry guys, it's a, it, it was just a big joke. It was a, it was a hoax. We took his body. We hid it. It was just a lie. But they didn't. And they didn't because it wasn't a hoax. And it wasn't a lie. It was the truth. They are, in fact, credible eyewitnesses. And what they saw was, in fact, the risen Christ. Eyewitness testimony. The second, to me, undeniable evidence of uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the inability of his detractors, the, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and, and, and so forth, their inability to produce a body. They couldn't do it. The very last thing that these guys wanted, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and so forth, they were all, they were all about power. And the very last thing that they wanted on the streets of Jerusalem after Jesus' death was for more people to start following him and believing in him, that he was the Messiah. But that is precisely what happened. And it was a fervor that began to, to run wild through the streets of Jerusalem like an, an infection. Within a few days, that's exactly what happened. And they didn't like it, not, not in the least. And they were willing to do whatever they could in order to stop that. In fact, that's why we have in Matthew's gospel account of this, that on the day after the crucifixion, on Saturday, yesterday, the, 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 sold, the soldiers went to, um, or the Pharisees went to Pontius Pilate, went back to him and, and, and beseeched him to seal the tomb and to set a guard in front of the tomb in order to guard it. That's also why after Jesus rose from the dead, these very same guards, these very same soldiers who were sent there to guard the tomb, after Jesus rose from the dead and the tomb was empty, they went back to these Pharisees, they went back to the Jewish leaders, and they said, he's gone. He, he, he's not in the grave anymore. He's, he's been risen. They bribed them and told them, just tell people that the disciples have taken the body. They did that precisely because they knew that the only way for them to quell this rebellion is to produce a body. And they didn't have it. All they had to do was to produce a body. Here he is, guys. Here's, here's Jesus' body. See, he can't be the Messiah. He can't be the anointed one promised from God from of old. He, he can't be the, the son of God because here's his body. He died and he's still dead. But they couldn't do that because they didn't have the body with which to produce it. If they had been able to do that, then friend, you and I wouldn't even be here today. And I believe Christianity would have been snuffed out within the first generation of the crucifixion. But it wasn't snuffed out. And the church is still here. And the reason is because they could not produce a body. They failed in providing the one piece of evidence that would have proven that the resurrection was a hoax. And the reason they couldn't produce a body is because Jesus had risen from the dead and he wasn't in the tomb. And subsequently he ascended back to the Father. They couldn't produce a body because there wasn't a body to produce. He rose 
from the dead. Again, there's lots of other evidences. That's just a taste. The, the overabundance of credible eyewitness testimony and the utter failure of the Jewish leaders to produce a body and prove that it didn't happen. But what does all this have to do with your life and mine? Well, what, what does this have to do with our today and our tomorrow and our, and our future? Why is this good news for you and I? I want, in the remainder of our time this morning, I want to cover three implications of the resurrection. Is the, and, and the first is that the resurrection proves that sin and death are defeated. Because Jesus rose from the dead, that means that, that sin and death are defeated for us. You see, before Jesus came on the scene, we were in the grip of sin and under the sentence of death. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who practices sin is a slave to sin. What is sin? Sin is anything that we think, say, or do that disobeys God or displeases God. And ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we have all, all of us, followed suit. And we have sinned as well. Why? Because that's who we are. We're sinners. As Jesus said, we're slaves to sin. We are sinners to our core. That's what we know. That's what we want. And so that's what we do. We are in the grip of sin. And because of that, we are spiritually dead. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, now he wrote that to people who were alive because it wouldn't make much sense to write a letter to people who were dead. So he wrote that to people who were physically alive. He said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So he's not referring to physical death there. He's referring to spiritual death. That, that, that there was a spiritual death with which we all identified because of our sin against God. So the bad news is that because of the grip of sin and our sentence of death, we have no hope of spiritual life and eternal life. Now that's bad news. But the good news is that on Good Friday, Jesus died in our place. He took on himself our sentence of death, our punishment for sin. He, he took our sin and he took our sentence of death and, and he died in our place. But then three days later, he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death forever. But again, all of this hinges on the resurrection because if the resurrection isn't true, then we are still in the grip of sin and still under the punishment of death. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. We read part of this earlier. Paul said, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Think about that. Christ has not been raised from the dead. Then our preaching is in vain. Vain means a waste of time, useless, accomplishing nothing. So that's what I'm doing. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, I'm simply wasting my time preaching this good news. And 
Our faith, your faith and mine in a risen Savior is in vain. It's, it's a waste of time. It's a, it's, a, it's a waste of energy. It's a waste of our life if Christ has not been raised. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those those who have, have died believing in Christ, having faith in Christ, well, then they've just perished. They're just in the dirt. Then he concludes with this thought in verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If our hope in Christ is only for the time that we have on this planet, then we are to be pitied more than any person who's ever walked on the face of earth. We are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says if there's no resurrection, then we're still under the grip of sin and we're still under the sentence of eternal spiritual death. But because the resurrection is true, the grip of sin and the sentence of death is broken forever. But I want you to know that this is not true for everyone. The grip of sin and the sentence of death is not broken for everyone. This is true only for those who believe. Jesus said in a very famous, familiar passage of Scripture in John chapter 3, He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so this is only true for those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But we should be reminded that the biblical word for believe is not just about intellectual agreement. It's not just believing in our head. Rather, in a sense, it's believing with our heart. It's really the word for faith. In the New Testament, in in the Greek of the New Testament, which the New Testament was written in, the, the, the Greek word for believe is simply the verb form of the word that is most often translated as faith. When it's a noun, it's translated as the word faith. But when it's a verb, it's translated as the word believe. So, so really, when we're talking about believing on Christ, we're talking about faithing on Christ, if we could turn faith into a verb. And so it is the difference between believing in our head who Jesus is and, and what he did. It's the difference between an, an intellectual agreement to that fact and placing our faith in Christ. 
placing our trust in him and our hope in him that he is our only hope for rescue from what we deserve, that he is our only hope for rescue from the grip of sin and the sentence of death. Those who do so trust in him are freed from the grip of sin and death. And those who do not, friend, are not freed from the grip of sin and death and are in fact still under the grip of sin and the sentence of death. So the question for you is, have you been freed from the grip of sin and the sentence of death? Or have you not? If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, if you've, if you've never turned to him in faith and trusted in his finished work on the cross and his resurrection three days later as your only hope to be rescued from what you deserve, the grip of sin and the sentence of death, then you remain under the grip of sin and you remain under the sentence of death, eternal spiritual death. And if that's true of you, then the good news is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead means that you don't have to stay there under the grip of sin and death. His resurrection proves that, that, that sin and death, that the, their power has been broken for all those who trust in him. So will you trust in him? I want to give you an opportunity to do just that in a moment. But those who have placed their faith in Christ, those, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your only hope for rescue, what a tremendous joy it is to, to celebrate that freedom on this day. No longer bound in chains, the chains of sin and death. The captives have been set free. The, the, the bondage of, of sin and death has been broken and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God that the grip of sin and the sentence of death has been broken because Jesus rose from the dead. A second implication of the resurrection, the first is that sin and death are defeated. But the second is that now believers have new life. Now, now we, we are a new person. We mentioned before that because of our sin, we are spiritually dead. We quoted Ephesians 2.1, where Paul said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. But now, because of Jesus' victory over sin and death, now we who were dead, we have been made alive in Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, and the new has come. What is that new thing that has come? A new life, a new heart, a new spirit, a new beginning. Now what does that mean for us? What, what difference does it make that we who, who hope in Christ alone have been given new life in Christ? What does that mean to us? A couple of things that it means for us. First, it means that now we can fulfill the destiny that God gave us, the purpose that he gave us, which is to worship him. Now we can do that. We can truly worship him. You see, God created us for that purpose. He created us to worship him. He created us to magnify him. He created us to live for and, and expand his glory throughout the world. That's why he created all of humanity, 
But we forfeited both the right and the ability to glorify him and worship him when we sinned against him. Now, because of sin, we are unable to worship him and incapable of worshiping him. Why? Because there's no spiritual connection between us and God. And there can't be because our spirit is dead. We're spiritually not alive anymore, Paul says, because of sin. And as spiritually dead people, when when we go through the motions of worship, well, then those are just empty words to God. Because he only receives worship from those who have been made alive in Christ, who, who are spiritually alive. Because that's where we worship God from, from our spirit. And if it's dead, then we can't worship. It's not just that we don't want to worship him. We categorically can't worship him because we are spiritually dead. But when Jesus rose from the dead, part of what that means is that those who were, who were spiritually dead have been now made alive in Christ because of faith in Jesus. Now we are spiritually reborn. To use Jesus' words from John 3, we are born again. We're, we're, we're born spiritually. And now out of that new birth springs new life. And from that new life, we now can connect with our Father. We can spiritually commune with the God who made us for his glory. And do what we were created to do in the first place, which is to worship him with every ounce of our being. The second thing that our new life in Christ means to us, first, it means that we can, we can now truly worship him because now we're alive spiritually. But secondly, it also means that now we can truly live for him. Since the resurrection means that we've been set free from the grip of sin, that means that our, our bondage to sin has been broken and now we can live for him. You see, before we couldn't do that. Before we were spiritually dead, uh, we were in bondage to sin. And because of that, all we knew was sin. All we wanted was sin. And all we could do was sin. Because that's who we were. We were sinners. But now in Christ, we have new life. And out of this new birth and this new spirit, now we can begin to live differently. Not perfectly, but progressively As we continue to mature in our faith, in our walk with Jesus, he changes us from the inside, from the spirit, and it begins to enflesh itself on the outside. We begin to look different. We begin to live differently. We begin to live for him. And we find that now we're able to faithfully live for Christ. But the thing is, if we don't have this new life in Christ, then that means that we're still spiritually dead. And not only does that mean that we can't worship God, we we can't can't live for him either. And if that describes you this morning, then please know that the answer for you is is not found in you trying harder to live for him or in you trying harder to worship him and place, because you simply can't. You you, you can't worship him and, and, and your efforts at trying to do so, your efforts at trying to live for him and trying to worship him are just empty religion because you are still spiritually dead. Instead, the answer for you, if you are spiritually dead, 
is to admit that fact, is to admit, admit that you are spiritually not alive because of your sin and rebellion against God. And the answer is to repent of that and to confess that before God and to ask him to forgive you and to place all of your faith in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and resurrected to rescue you, to be your only hope for rescue, and to make you spiritually alive once again so that you can worship him and you can live for him and have that new life. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ means, first of all, that sin and death are defeated. Secondly, it means that we now have new life in Christ. But the third implication that I want to leave you with this morning is that because of the resurrection, church, our greatest joy awaits us. Our greatest joy awaits us. The greatest blessing of the resurrection is not just that we can be forgiven. It's not just that sin and death are defeated or that now we are spiritually alive. In fact, the greatest blessing of the resurrection is really not all about us at all. It's all about God. You see, God made us for his glory to, to, to revel in his majesty, to revere him and honor him and glorify him and delight in him and treasure him above all things and all people in our life. But in our sin, we began to revere other gods. We began to think more of self and worship self and things of this world and adore creation and delight in things and people and treasure just about anything other than God more than God. And in the blindness of our sin, we, we thought those things were magnificent. We thought they were delightful. We, we thought that they were good, and so we, we loved them. And we set our affections on them, and we built our lives around them, and they satisfied us, or so we thought. The problem was, in, in our spiritual deadness, we didn't realize how incredibly unsatisfying and ultimately unsatisfying those things were. We, we didn't understand how we had settled for lesser joys and delights. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, which is a collection of sermons that he preached during World War II, said this, one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. But like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Because we, for far too long, we have settled for lesser joys and delights. Friend, because the grip of sin and the sentence of death has been defeated because of Jesus' death and resurrection, now in faith we can see 
that the greatest joy we could possibly have in our life, the greatest treasure we could possibly have in our life, the greatest delight is God himself. And now by faith, because of the resurrection, we are his and he is our God and he will be with us forever and we will never, ever be without him. Now by faith in the risen Christ, we are, we're reconciled to God. Now, now we can enter into his throne room. Now we can enter into the holy of holies, that inner sanctum of presence with God because the, the veil has been rent in two from the top to the bottom and we have been granted access to him, to his presence, both now and forever by faith in his son Jesus. And though we still live in this world with sin and temptation and other delights and other treasures being waved in our faces all day long, we look forward to a day when he will free us not just from the penalty of sin and not just from the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. The joy we have in the resurrection is but a glimpse of the joy that will be ours when we meet our Redeemer face to face. And church, it's all because of the resurrection. He is alive. Jesus has risen. And because he has risen, he has defeated sin and death. We who are spiritually alive have now been given new life in Christ. And we, by faith in Christ, we've been reconciled to our God, who is our greatest delight and joy. You know, when I look at those three implications of the resurrection, that sin and death are defeated, that we're given new life in Christ now, that, that we've been reunited to our greatest delight, the delight of our soul that completes us. When I consider those three things, I think of one thing. I think of one word, the word hope. That's really the message of the resurrection, isn't it? Hope. And biblical hope is not, it's not wishful thinking. It, it, it's not, oh, I, I hope, I, I, I hope that we'll be spared from this virus. No, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. It is a confident assurance in the presence of an already determined future. Because of the resurrection, we have the hope of rescue from sin and death. Confident assurance of an already determined future. Sin will not hold us down. Death will not keep us just as it did not keep Jesus. We have the hope of rescue from sin and death. We have the hope of new life in Christ. And we have the hope of future glory. A confident assurance today that it is already going to happen in the future. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And, and, and how do we get that living hope? It is through, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is, listen to how he describes our inheritance. This, this description of our living hope. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, 
kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I don't know about you, but I don't think there's ever been a time where we need that kind of hope more than this season of uncertainty in our country, in our community, in our world. But our hope in this time is not in political leaders and not in a stimulus package and not in public health organizations or immunizations or face masks or hydroxychloroquine or whatever you call it. Not that those are bad things. Not that those are bad things. But the kind of hope that they deliver is just wishful thinking for a temporary help. You see, I think we're being reminded today of our frailty as human beings. That in spite of our ingenuity and, and, and progress, humanity can be threatened by a, a sub-microscopic cell called a coronavirus. Over 100,000 people have died in just a few short weeks, and most experts expect that to grow exponentially. The strongest economy on the face of the earth has been brought to a halt all because of a microscopic cell, an infectious cell called a coronavirus that isn't even alive. Friend, if we can't stop the coronavirus, what hope do we have in defeating our greatest enemy, death? Just like the song that we sang earlier, I love the new song that we've been singing. We've been singing it for about a, about a month now. And it's just... God's providence that we would sing this song during this season because it's so applicable, not just to Easter, but to the season that we're in where we need hope. The song is Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, written by Matt Papa and Keith Getty. And the first verse says this, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls Belong to him alone. And then the chorus, O sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. O, o sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Church, our only hope in our fight against sin and temptation is a risen Savior. Our only hope for rescue from the finality of death and the certainty of hell, which we deserve because of our rebellion against God, our only hope for rescue from that is an empty tomb. And church, our only hope in the middle of a pandemic, not, not, not the kind of hope of being protected from this virus, because we're not promised that, but a greater hope. The hope that, that no virus will ever ultimately and finally destroy us. Our only hope in this pandemic is Jesus Christ. Our only hope is the gospel. Our only hope is a redeemer who came and put on flesh and lived the perfect righteous life that we never could and died in our place on a cross, slain before the foundation of the world, and three days later rose again, proving that he was the son of God and that he had defeated sin and death. He made it so that those who trust in him could have new life in Christ. 
and reunited us to our greatest joy and delight. Friend, Jesus is alive, and that means hope. Hope for those who place their faith in him. So do you have that hope? Would you pray with me? Do you have the hope of eternal life this morning? I'm not asking, do you, do, do you go to church? I'm not asking if you read the Bible. I'm not asking you if you, at some point in your life, made some kind of decision. I'm just asking you today, do you have the hope, the confident assurance that you'll see Jesus face to face? If you've not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then that hope is not yours, but it can be. Because I believe the Lord has you listening for a reason. I believe the Lord has you listening to this, watching this, because he's drawing you to himself. The Spirit is at work in your life at this moment. And he's giving you faith. And he's giving you new life. Will you trust in him? Will you keep trusting in your own efforts and your own ability to try to be good and earn this which could not be earned? Or will you trust in Christ alone and place your faith in a crucified and risen Savior who lives and reigns even today? I pray that you will put your trust in Christ and Lord, we, we pray for those who are listening to this, and considering the claims of Jesus, considering the resurrection, considering the implications of that on their life. And God, we pray for them and ask them, ask you, Lord, that you would give them faith to trust in your son, Jesus, that you would walk them across the line of faith and welcome them into your family and restore them to be a worshiper of you. Father, those of us whom you have saved in that way, that you've rescued by giving us faith, giving us new life. Father, may this fresh recollection of the resurrection of your son Jesus cause us to fall in love with you even more. Would you draw us to yourself, cause our minds attention and our hearts devotion to be enraptured by your grace. May we live in light of that. Not to pay you back, but to thank you out of a grateful heart that's been transformed by this good news. And Father, we look forward to that day when you reunite us, not just spiritually, but physically, and we see you face to face. Until then, we pray, Father, that you would sustain us, keep us in the faith, and keep us spreading this good news to those who so desperately need it. We love you, Father. We thank you for Jesus, and we pray this in his name. Amen.